1: That's chumbacasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. BDW. Void avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Continuing our look at humans as monsters, we'll be taking a look at the legendary figure of Rasputin, the so called mad monk of Russian history. Because of the nature of Rasputin's alleged behavior, this episode may not be suitable for children. Rasputin, the mad monk, history's man of mystery. At last, the real shocking story can be told.
2: Rasputin,
1: the mad monk, goaded by an insane lust to dominate and destroy. His mystic powers and physical strength made him the most dangerous man of his time. It's
0: actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before.
1: Giant Hairy Creature, Part 8, Part Man. In Loch Ness, a 24 mile long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland,
0: it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster.
1: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stolzner.
1: Today we're joined by author Douglas Smith to discuss the strange Russian historical figure Rasputin. He was a monk, a seer, a healer, and a political player in the dying days of the Russian royal family. Somehow he's become a legend of monstrous proportions, but we're going to peel away some of those layers to get to the truth underneath. Please check out the show notes of this episode at monstertalk.org or at Patreon, where we'll have links to Douglas's book and other helpful information about Rasputin, including a music video for a very catchy song. Monster Talk.
2: Welcome to Monster Talk. Um, could you give a little introduction to yourself? My name's Douglas Smith. Uh, I was born and raised in, uh, in Minnesota. And uh, I sort of Fell in love with uh, all things Russian when I went off to college in, in Vermont uh, in 1981 and started taking Russian language classes. It was, you know, the height of the Cold War and all that. So I went on to study uh, the language, got a major uh, in Russian and German, uh, worked for the State Department after graduating in the Soviet Union, and then went and got a Ph.D. in Russian history at UCLA Um, And basically, I've just been devoting my life ever since to uh, writing and and researching Russian history. So I've written uh, just finishing my sixth book now, which will be out in the fall. So we could put a link to that in the show notes. Um.
0: So, Douglas, how did you develop an interest in Rasputin then?
2: Um, You know, it's funny. I often find that uh, the research for one book will lead to an idea for the next book. And that's basically how I ended up. Uh, turning to Rasputin as a topic, I I have to be honest, I was never one of these people who was long fascinated by him uh, or caught up in all the the mythology of Rasputin. But I was working on a book about what happened to the elite of Russian society, the Russian aristocracy, the the Russian 1%, if you will, after the revolution of, of 1917, when this whole class of people was basically destroyed. And for that research, I kind of had to read a lot about the final years of Tsarist Russia, the first, uh, you know, seventeen years of the t- of the twentieth century. And everything I read, uh, I was always stumbling upon Rasputin, and mm-hmm. this got my wheels turning a bit. And I started to to realize just how important he was for those last years of Romanov Russia, and that and that his significance was not overblown by popular culture. So I became curious, and I started to read some of the standard biographies of him, and I came away a bit disappointed. They seemed to leave him as some sort of a caricature and not a a real, rounded, complex individual. And so that's kind of how I ended up going down the the rabbit hole of Rasputin. Great. Yeah, so uh,
1: actually just a few minutes ago before coming down here uh, to do this recording, I was talking to my daughter, and she heard me mention his name. And she said, uh, you know, who was Rasputin? And I started to try to explain it. And I said, wait a minute, you know, you can just listen to the episode. Uh, but but she <laughs> she mentioned this song, the Rasputin song, and made me stop and listen to that. And somehow, even though the song came out in like 78, I'd never heard it before. So who was Rasputin? Because I guess we have a really big uh, a spectrum of listeners, age-wise and education-wise. And they're all over the world. So I, if you wanted to, I mean, I, I mostly know him from legend. And I, you know, I was mm-hmm. always very suspicious about the stories I heard because it was mostly about how hard he was to kill at the end of his life, and kind of always these sort of bigger-than-life. What
0: a ladies' man he was! Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, yes. he, yeah. he sounds like yeah. almost like a comic
2: book character, and he looked
1: kind of mm-hmm. like one. So, but yes. but yeah, who who was he?
2: Well, first of all, I would say uh, it's definitely good to check out that song by Boney M. Yep. <laughs> uh, from, from the 70s I actually had not heard that song either before I got started and people started to always oh. sing it to me Ra Ra Rasputin, Lover of the Russian Queen and I was always like, what are you talking about? Ra
1: Ra Rasputin, Lover of the Russian
2: <laughs> and they said, "You don't know Boney M? I I said, "Oh God, oh God, I got to look this up." So yes, it's it's worth it. it's worth checking it out on YouTube. Um, yeah. it's actually a fun a fun song. But Rasputin was a Russian mystic, a Russian peasant holy man, um, of which there were actually a great many in late nineteenth and early twentieth century Russia. There really were a lot of these sort of. Um, holy men who had no religious training, didn't go to seminary, weren't priests, weren't monks, but somehow carried the living spirit of God in them. And they would travel around the country and and people would turn to them for spiritual guidance. And he was one of these figures. And he was so immensely popular over time. And so to many people, credible and powerful as one of these simple peasant holy men that he attracted the attention of uh, the aristocratic elite, the upper classes in the capital of St. Petersburg. And they fell in love with him. And members of the royal family then introduced him to the emperor and the empress, to Nicholas and Alexandra. And they were equally taken by him and brought him in and, and made him one of the closest people that they ever gathered with.
0: So during Rasputin's life, the occult and supernatural were very popular in imperial Russia. So what were some of the paranormal fads at the time, things like seances and, and healing?
2: Yeah, exactly. I, I came away with the realization that Rasputin was only really possible having lived at this time. Sort of the, again, this from basically 1890 to 1914 or so with the outbreak of World War I. Um, what is often known as the silver age of of Russian culture. The elite were fascinated by all forms of of mysticism, the occult, and as you said, yeah, they would hold seances. Um, they would try to call forth, you know, the spirits of, of the dead. Um, they believed that they were people who were in touch with other realms of experience beyond the senses uh, of the average. Um, there were, you know, ectoplasmic manifestations um, uh, hypnosis, all sorts of things like this were incredibly popular. And Rasputin kind of taps into this mentality, if you will, um, and people come to project onto him great mystical powers that he necessarily did not even claim to possess, but they wanted to believe that there were people who had these, these sort of occult powers and uh he was uh, uh, very much willing to go along with people's perception of him as someone who was uh, in touch with these these uh larger cryptic forces
1: that's interesting we, we over the course of um, the past year and a half two years we've been doing a series on uh, like the magic and the rise of western esotericism and that sort of thing uh, was i know spiritualism had started um, in the mid 1800s, and and then Theosophy had started, I think, in 1870. Were were those movements popular in Russia at the time? Or did was there, or was this uh, its own sort of spiritual practice, or or was it part of that sort of uh, migrated from America kind of spiritualism?
2: I think, to a very uh, large extent, it it borrowed from uh, Western habits and cultures and traditions, practices. Um, you know, spiritualism and theosophy and some of these things, you know, they swirled all around, uh, from big cities in the United States, uh, to England, um, to the continent and, and made their way to Russia. So it very much was in tune with the kinds of things that people were preoccupied with, uh, you know, in, in the cities of America or Western Europe for that matter. What's a little bit different is the figure, uh, of this sort of peasant, holy man, what the Russians call a star um, this, uh, holy peasant figure was distinctive to Russia and did not exist. Uh, in Western Europe or the United States. I, this is kind of a tangent, but I'm curious.
1: During Soviet Russia, my understanding was there was a real push against supernatural thinking and, and uh, religion. Um, since the fall of the Soviet Union, if you're kind of plugged into that, has, has Russia had a uptick in supernatural interest?
2: Yeah, definitely. As you said, you know, during the entire Soviet period, religion uh, was, if not repressed, then very much controlled by the state. Uh, and interest in more sort of obscure occult practices and mysticism was definitely, uh, not to be tolerated after the collapse of the Soviet union in the early nineties, because people had been denied access to this kind of thing for so long, there was this boom, there was this great interest in this kind of thing because people were so starved for it. And a lot of it flowed in from, from the West and there was a great deal of obsession with these sorts of ideas. I would say that is calmed down just because they've, they've been able to have access to it now for mm, close to 30 years. Basically um, the church is obviously not only tolerated, but is almost viewed as an arm of the state and uh, Putin very much encourages the Russian Orthodox church as an expression of uh, Russian patriotism, of of Russian identity, um, so these things I would say exist, but they're not as as um, popular, in my opinion, as they were, you know, twenty five years or so ago.
0: And uh, so Rasputin, as you're saying, was seen as a holy man and a healer. So what were some of his paranormal claims? And I note that you also said that there's a difference between what his claims were and. And uh, what the legends were even at the time.
2: Well, yeah, that's what gets so tricky when you're, you're trying to talk about Rasputin is he was very cautious not to, to make grand claims about his healing powers. It was more the degree to which people's faith in him and faith in his power as a man of God, um, that they believed that, that he could heal, that uh, either through prayer uh, or through the laying on of his hands or through the mere power of his gaze. You know, one of the things that we're all struck by Rasputin uh, is that, that unique uh, set of eyes that he had for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, And many people believe that there was this sort of strange electricity that flowed out of his eyes, these grayish green eyes that he had um, that those in and of themselves possess some special power to heal. Um, But again, it's, I came away with the perception that this was more a projection of people's wishes and desires onto Rasputin than it was claims that he made as a healer. Now, he was, he was very cunning um, and was someone who wanted to get ahead. And so he was not one to necessarily try to tamp out such talk about his healing powers, um, mm-hmm. but he was not necessarily one to go around and brag about it either.
0: You know, he's uh, making me think of a modern-day character, and I think Blake might know of him. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, Douglas, but his name's uh, Bratso, and he's a Croatian healer. Have you heard of him at all?
1: No, I have not. Uh, yeah, I have <laughs> I have heard of him. Yeah.
0: I, yeah, I wrote about him a lot a couple of years ago. He travels uh, the United States and gazes at people, and when he gazes at them, they claim that they get receive good luck and that they're healed and that they experience all of these wonderful spiritual things. Uh, But the interesting thing is that he doesn't talk. So he just stands on stage and gazes at the audience for about 10 minutes and uh, then walks off and sees tens of thousands of people a day and makes a lot of money doing this. But the interesting thing is that, like what you're saying about Rasputin, he doesn't really make the claims himself. So he just allows other people to speak on his behalf and come up with this you know, cult of personality.
2: That's fascinating. No, i I have not heard of that. Clearly, this man has read up on Rasputin, though. That would be my that would oh, be my opinion.
0: That's and again, what I'm starting to think.
2: Well, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, and you know what's interesting is this whole question of, of um Rasputin's healing powers. Obviously, I, I had to think a lot about it when I was researching the book because that is one of the things that we know about him, or has been at least said about him. And I did a a good deal of reading about all the the claims that he had healed somebody, um, what he said himself about his powers to heal, and I came away with the conviction that what we're dealing with when we're talking about and the healer is this sort of mind-body connection. Um, And there's a great deal of research that's going on now at major universities, Harvard University, UCLA, other universities, in the connection between emotional states and physical health. Um, And we are really sort of at the beginnings of trying to figure out the degree to which uh, our mental health affects our physical health. And also, you know, the whole placebo effect and not just in a very narrow sense of taking a, a sugar peel, but in the um, much more powerful sense about when we believe that someone has the power to heal us, um, Mm -hmm. we actually have a greater chance of recovering. And that even goes down to when we visit our regular GP or other doctor and they've got the white coat on and the stethoscope and how these props lend um, belief and uh, prepare us to accept what is either being told to us, uh, or given to us in in the forms of medicine, and these are it sounds a bit like quackery to some people, but it's actually it's actually a very real phenomenon that is being seriously studied.
1: It is it's it's interesting to me uh, uh, very much so because there's so many things at play there. There's the uh, the fact that when you receive a treatment and expect to get better, psychologically you feel better, and <laughs> and that has a very powerful. Effect, but there's also within like mathematics and statistics. A lot of times, you will uh, you will feel better after getting a treatment, but your your disease or your condition may have run its course, and so you feel like even if you weren't getting an actually um, what's the word efficacious treatment, it still feels like it was because it happened to coincide with. But, you know, the downtrend on the uh, the illness, there's so many things at play. Yeah. disease, yeah. And then you tell the stories about that, and then other people have higher expectations for the treatment. It, 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 there's so much at play there. It's really interesting. And what everybody wants it to be, and, and what I want it to be, is the idea that, that you know, your mind at some level can make you feel better or heal you and and – I hope if I ever get really sick with something like that 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 turns out to be true. But <laughs> I'm always skeptical about it, but I, I want it to be true. So yeah, you
0: can go and be gazed at by Bratzo.
1: You know, I think Bratzo is taking advantage of gazer rights. What? <laughs> I'm going to have to
2: look him up after this.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I'm sure you would know the spelling, um, but B R A C O, so Bratzo, and I will uh, I, investigate. Yeah. Croatian, but I think he's living in Hawaii. As
1: and, one does.
0: Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> certainly. Uh, I think he's been to Australia a few times too, but he, he travels the United States quite frequently.
2: Well, and I think there's always going to be a uh, a desire, a longing for figures like this. I mean, some people, you know, they go to Western medicine and they don't get healed. Mm-hmm. There's one thing, um, yeah. for whatever reasons. Um uh, and some people are turned off by traditional organized religion. Um, and so I think there's always going to be um interest in different places for for figures, um, you know like like Brazo, whatever or however you say his name. but but I think I'm in Russia true. Brazo, I think Russia, you know, in the latter years of the Romanov dynasty, this stuff was boiling. This stuff was boiling. People were really, really keen uh, on the occult on mysticism. On you know hermetic sciences or whatever you want to uh, call them, it was it was very very popular. In preparing for this episode,
1: I was watching uh, some documentaries from the BBC, read your article, and did a few other things. Um, but it seemed like Rasputin was being described a lot as a as a drunkard, as a womanizer. He was taking people to uh, bathhouses, and it just sounded like he was. Uh, uh, hypersexual, whether that was all consensual or not. I'm, I'm curious, how is he able to do those things and still be seen as a holy man?
2: Yeah, there's the rub. <laughs> there's there's the rub. First uh, of all... So to speak, so to speak. Yeah, no, <laughs> sorry. sorry, I didn't need to say it twice, did I? That was my point. <laughs> One thing you need to remember is... Um, the Royal family, Nicholas and Alexandra and their children, they never saw any of this behavior. Uh, they heard reports of it, uh, but they tended not to believe it. So, so that was one thing that was important. I think the womanizing, the drinking, uh, was real. This was not just uh, a pack of lies put together by his detractors as a way to destroy his reputation. There's just too much evidence, a lot of it from the police files that I read in, in Moscow, in the archives, and other places. It, he was definitely um, he was definitely drawn to women. He he was a creep at the very least. Any one, woman who sat next to him on a sofa or, or whatever was apt to be pawed, rubbed, groped felt, um, uh, no matter how much they might protest, uh, he had trouble keeping his hands off them. He took many women to his bed, even though he was married and his, his wife knew about all this, his children knew about all this. Um, their attitude seemed to be, well, he's, he's got so much love in him. It would be a shame to limit it just to, you know, his Mm. wife, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, um, we've all felt that you know, before. Yeah. <laughs> there was, the, there was the, a famous saying, uh, and it wasn't invented by Rasputin, although people have suggested it was, but it was by another one of these peasant holy men that basically, if you don't sin, you can't repent. And if you don't <laughs> repent, you can't be saved. Wow. It's wow. a very convenient <laughs> logic, me- of course. It was. Um, it would be 100 years or more before
1: people started saying "niet" means net <laughs>
2: exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I try to take this seriously. You know, did he rape women? Was there sexual assault? Mm-hmm. It's very likely there was. I honestly don't know. And, you know, we don't... As historians, we have to go on what the sources allow us. And it's really right. difficult in this kind of territory. And I, I try to take it, it seriously. Um... Uh, one thing that's interesting is, you know, uh, despite all the the womanizing and despite all the legends and lies and distortions told about him, no one ever came forward saying that they were pregnant with Rasputin's child. There were no, you know, illegitimate children, which is interesting. That's re- I, and that was something that really struck me, which made me then start to wonder well, maybe the womanizing wasn't on quite the scale we had been led to believe.
0: Possibly. Yeah. But I'm also wondering how women could have been attracted to him. Uh, from what I've, I've read, he, his hygiene was was very lacking and he was unclean and dirty. Uh, but I guess as you're saying that there, there might have been some non-consensual stuff going on there as well, or it might have just been women being attracted to his power.
2: Yeah. Well, a couple of things there. Yeah. That's one of the the perceptions that he was, uh, you know, a, a, a dirty, unwashed, uh, smelly peasant. But what's interesting is if you read up on where those notions come from, you see that they were all written by sort of wealthy aristocrat haters, if you will, for lack of a better term. And for them, any peasant was, by definition, dirty, <laughs> right. smelly, unwashed. So this is very much sort of a class based attack on him. He, in fact, was going to the bathhouse like several times a week and um, kept himself clean, kept his hair clean, kept his uh, nails and hands clean. Um, So that is very much more uh, a projection of an upper-class snobbism, if you will. Mm -hmm. That said, he was not what we would call conventionally attractive, but... Uh, and I don't want to go into too many modern day parallels. We've seen many, many instances of rather physically unattractive men uh, flocked by uh, attractive women, and, and I think that is, you know, a question of, of power, ultimately. Right.
1: right. Yeah, I think what, what who is it? Uh, was it Kissinger that said power is the ultimate aphrodisiac? <laughs> I think I think it was. But um... so
2: that's or his wife. I forget which one. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, I was, when you said
1: that, uh, you know, that most of the aristocracy thought that peasants are revolting, I I, I always remember that joke, you know, it's the, uh, uh, your highness, the peasants are revolting. Oh, yes. And
2: they smell terrible, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, well, that was, <laughs> and that, you know, funny as it is, that is at the base of much of the, uh uh, legends and myths about Rasputin. It was these, these uh, you know, counts and uh, princesses uh, in the salons in, in their palaces in Petersburg who were outraged that an uneducated peasant had so much access to the royal palace and had entree into the private life of Nicholas and Alexandra, and they, mm-hmm. aristocrats, were being kept out. It drove them nuts and so they were the ones that often began spreading all these lies and rumors and, and gossip about Rasputin. Right. Well, I know I've read the legendary
1: version of it, but I, I, I want to kind of hear your version because I know you've done a lot of uh, primary source research. How did Rasputin come to be so influential with the Romanov family? I think that's probably mm. why he's famous, right? Is because of his relationship. Yeah.
0: Especially since there were so many holy men who were around at the time. What was it about him?
2: Yeah. Well, it's interesting is you've got to go back a little bit before he appears in Petersburg in the capital in the early years of the 20th century. Alexandra, the empress, who was uh, a German, married Nicholas, the heir to the Russian throne. Um, she had long been fascinated with mysticism um, and had long been interested in... Um, basically seers and necromancers and, and whatever you, alienists, whatever you may want to call it. And she was put in touch through a family member with uh, a Frenchman by the name of Monsieur Philippe, um, who claimed to, you know, be able to, you know, predict the future, who claimed to be able to, you know, heal with the touch of his hands, who even claimed that he could help uh, determine the sex uh, of a, baby in, in utero. Um, and Alexandra was fascinated by this man and she brought him from France to Russia to be with them at court. And the people around them at court were scandalized because they, they could smell this guy as a fraud from a mile away. And they basically got him kicked out of the country. But before Philippe left, he said to Alexandra and to Nicholas, just you wait, I must leave you but be ready, a new friend will one day appear. So he planted the seed in their minds that someone would come to take his place. And it was literally a year or two later that other members of the Romanov extended family bring Rasputin to court and introduce him to Nicholas and Alexandra and say, this is an amazing man of God from Siberia with a profound religious sense, profound insight into the human condition with profound spiritual wisdom that he wishes to share with you. And they met with him in the palace and he spoke to them and they were immediately bewitched by him. And his appearance seemed to confirm the prophecy of Monsieur Philippe. And from that point on, they remained attached to him. So uh, that's interesting. I I think
1: Karen and I, when we've done research around this type of topic, we've we've seen that sort of prophecy-slash-messiah-type thing so many times. And isn't there sort of a built-in mechanism there? So if someone says, there's another who is coming, and you will know him by this, that, or the other, that any number of people might appear, then everybody's going to be checking them to see if they match up. And, and like, anybody could end up being that person. The first influential person who comes along could... Everybody's going to think, oh, that's the Messiah, or that's the one that was prophesied. It's kind of like the Harry Potter... Uh, <laughs> there's, but in, in the Harry Potter books, there's uh, it could be Harry or it could be Neville. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's like both of them could fulfill the prophecy. I mean, anybody could fulfill the prophecy. So, you know, is, is that – any? I mean, did you notice anything like that where people seem to, like, find potential other people who could have been, but he ended up winning that sort of contest? Or how did, how did that play out?
2: Yeah, there were other uh, sort of holy men around. Um, and there was a bit of competition uh, to win that sort of empty spot that had been left open after uh, Monsieur Philippe uh, was forced to go back to France. You know, and one of the arguments is is that the various factions at the royal court were each trying to find their guy, right, mm-hmm. and introduce their guy to Nicholas and Alexandra in the hope that if their holy man won out, they would then create a bond with Nicholas and Alexandra and gain an influence and power at the court. But this doesn't happen with Rasputin. He's too smart. He's too independent. And once he is, is secure in his relationship with Nicholas and Alexandra, he basically kicks um, the others who had helped him get to court to the side. It was these two sisters, the so-called black crows, they were sisters from the kingdom of Montenegro, and they were the ones who had married into the royal family, the Romanov royal family, and introduced Rasputin to court. Um, and then after he basically didn't need their help anymore, uh, they lost control over him. And they, too, then start to spread rumor and gossip about him once they realize that he won't play the role of their of their puppet. But I think what you say is so important. You know, you can have a very fertile seed, but if you drop, drop that seed on on dirt that is 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 dry mm-hmm. it's not going to grow a tree or a plant and what you have in russia at that time is very receptive soil and that's what uh you know alexandra and nicholas are they are that's soil that's just waiting to receive some sort of seed and to grow something
0: right yeah this is making me think of uh, a character called matreya i'm not sure if either of you are familiar with him i am um yeah, and how he's supposed to be, I think, Jesus and Buddha and many holy men all rolled into one. Uh, and there are just constant claims that he's going to appear sometime soon. And uh, and there are occasional sightings of him in various parts of the world as well. Yeah, I so. think the
1: uh, the sort of the herald for Maitreya just recently passed away. The guy who originally started bringing out the story, I think that's true. So.
0: Uh, Benjamin Krem, I think a, is a, Brit- a British guy? Yes, yeah, yeah and yeah. Uh, the organizations share international. Yeah. So uh, I'm going off on a tangent now anyway, but I wanted to ask you, Douglas, if uh, you mentioned that Rasputin was from Siberia, and Siberia just seems like such a interesting place, uh, so unknown, there's so little known about it, it's just so desolate and barren. Is it seen as a mystical place to Russian people? Or was well, it ever? It's
2: definitely, it's definitely seen as, you know, a far off land, for sure, and in in fact, like when uh, when Russians at that time would talk about parts of the empire, uh, Siberia was very much its own place. I mean, literally, Rasputin would say, you know, I'm I'm leaving Russia to go to Siberia, or I'm leaving Siberia to go to Russia, and others did too. So it was definitely seen as as a land apart. Um, a land, uh, you know, distinctive and, and, and unique from the rest of Russia. Um, and it is, you know, I've obviously been to his village where he was born and spent time there Pakrovskaya, in Western, wow. in Western Siberia and, um, I've been in various parts of Siberia over over the decades working and, and studying and, and traveling and things. I mean, it's, cool. it's, quite, it's quite beautiful. Beautiful forests and mighty rivers and, and lakes. And it's a really, you know, it's a amazing landscape. But it definitely seems like, you know, completely a world away from the, you know, cities of Moscow or, or Petersburg in European right. Russia. Mm-hmm. And it's also important in that, Siberia never had serfdom. Now, now, serfdom was, in a sense, a form of slavery. And Western Russia, European Russia, the traditional heart of Russia, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the peasants were serfs. They were basically slaves. They worked for masters or they worked for the czars, uh, and they could even be bought and sold. There was no serfdom in Siberia. The, the peasants there were independent and free and I think it's important to make that point because I don't think a Rasputin would have come out of Western European Russia with the legacy of serfdom. It, it's okay. repeated often that the, the Siberians are a, a proud and much more independent people than the Russians uh, from the West. And I think that's also significant.
1: Yeah, just to verify this, I know it's kind of a tangent, but yeah, Benjamin Cream, I think it's pronounced Cream a little, le, little accent le, le, like, le He died in 2016. But but there are other people who are looking for Maitreya But uh,
0: But yeah, he did well he didn't claim to be Maitreya but he was the no, one right. saying he, that,
1: he was like he was like the herald. He was like a uh, silver surfer for Ooh. Galactus. What?
0: Yeah, and, uh, so and they that probably believe probably
1: in,
2: really in UFOs and
0: probably. aliens <laughs> and all kinds of things. I'm right. learning, I'm learning
2: right. more than you guys are, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, not the
0: case Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. understand that's our whole (laughs) show so join us every wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on instagram tiktok and twitter at chinwag pod and Wagon. (laughs) well but so it's so interesting though because um uh i think rasputin as a as, as a real person somehow accrued all these myths about him i mean i mean he seemed to be like a, a piece of gum that you drop on the floor. It's like if myths are pieces of dust or hair, they just they just keep sticking to him,
0: just like that.
1: <laughs> um, can we can we talk a little bit about what your book uh, reveals around that? I don't want to spoil it because it was a a huge book and people will want to check it out. But uh, can you talk about some of the major ones, um, maybe in chronological order? Because I know I want to talk about his death, but uh, but some of the other stuff about him being a spy or his prophecies, that sort of stuff.
2: Yeah, the myths go on and on and on. And it was it was a devilishly difficult job trying to untangle them all. And then to figure out where they started and who started them. and um, You know, there, there are myths that, you know, when he was young, that he was a bedwetter, uh, that, um, that he was a horse thief, which to our perspective doesn't seem all that terrible, but was a pretty awful thing to say about a Russian peasant in those days. Um, there were, uh, all sorts of obviously claims about his, uh, sexuality and his womanizing and that sort of thing. And then as he gains greater notoriety, and especially as it becomes clear to most Russians of his profound, uh, connections with Nicholas and Alexandra, then the myths begin to change a bit. And it's less important his drinking and his womanizing and and his wild dancing at parties. And it takes on a political flavor that he's basically selling power, that he's taking bribes for favors from the Tsar. And then um, after World War One breaks out in 1914, then the rumors also start to turn on the conduct of the war against Germany and Austria and whether or not Rasputin is a spy and is in fact helping Russia's enemies, thus keeping Russia from winning the war. And these become hugely important uh, bits of the Rasputin legend and mythology that uh, become to define him in the later years of his life.
1: My favorite myth is the one that first introduced me to Rasputin. When I was in high school, uh, my friends and I used to... uh, just read the most nerdy things and one of our favorite ones uh was the uh, the book of lists and uh back before the internet this was a uh, just sort of a a textbook of like coldest it was kind of like Guinness book of world records but maybe a little bit more fact based uh yeah. Th- yeah and one of the things was like uh the like 10 hardest-to-kill people in history, right? <laughs> and, and, it, and it had, like, these great stories about people who had been, uh, uh, they were they were going to take advantage of them, they got an insurance policy, and then they started making them drink antifreeze and uh, tried to, you know, poison them in other ways, and it just couldn't work, you know. And, but the number one guy most difficult to kill was Rasputin. And the legend <laughs> around his death, uh, I, you know, Maybe I should let you tell it because you've actually researched it and not just read the rumors, but maybe we could talk about for a moment what's the what's the legendary version of his death and what do you think was the actual version of his death?
2: Yeah, if there's you know if there's one story that people know about Rasputin, it's it's his death and how he met his his end. The version that most people are familiar with and it, it has various uh, additions and subtractions, depending on where they picked it up, is that uh, Rasputin was invited uh, to a fake party in the uh, St. Petersburg mansion of Prince Felix Yusupov, who was one of the richest men in Russia at the time. And Yusupov and several others had a plan to assassinate Rasputin that night in the cellar. And they got the room all ready and they made it look like there was a party. Um, They had wine, which they had poisoned. They had little sweet cakes that they had poisoned. And they brought Rasputin over and Rasputin thought he was going to meet Prince Yusupov's uh, lovely young bride. But instead they took him down into the cellar and upstairs, they had a phonograph playing Yankee Doodle Dandle, Dandy to suggest that there was a party going up, uh, upstairs as well. <laughs> and basically, Yusupov tried to first poison uh, Rasputin. He drank the wine, he ate the cakes, and he got sleepy, but he didn't die. And uh, so Yusupov got frightened. He ran upstairs to his co and spitters and said, he's not dying, he's not dying, what should I do? <laughs> So they said, get back down there, shoot him, do something. So he went back down, he shot Rasputin, Rasputin falls, he runs back upstairs, I did it, I did it, I killed him. They go back downstairs, and sure enough, Rasputin jumps up from the floor and (laughs) begins to strangle them. Uh, He starts running out, they shoot him a couple more times, he's still alive, but they throw him in the back of a car, and they drive off, and they find a hole in the ice of the Neva River, and they Mm -hmm. dump him in this hole in the river, uh, and when they find the body several days later, frozen, they notice that there's actually water in the lungs, which suggests that despite the poisoning, despite the multiple gunshots, all of these things, he eventually died of drowning. Now, it's an amazing story, and it's told in Prince Yusupov's memoirs, which he wrote in multiple editions, and with each edition, the murder story gets more gruesome and more gothic and more unbelievable. but I've seen the actual autopsy photographs, uh, which are in a museum in, in St. Petersburg, which are pretty oh. amazing. Um, yeah. And it's, it's very clear what really happened to Rasputin, which is not as uh, you know lurid and, and exciting, but basically they did indeed lure him to the Yusupov palace, uh, claiming that they were gonna introduce him to Yusupov's wife at a party.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But basically they shot him three times and you can see the bullet wounds Uh, on the body, uh, once through the back, once through the front of the torso. And then there's something that the Russians now call a control shot, which is a bullet hole that went right dead through the middle of his forehead. And it seems most likely that he was shot while in the cellar and somehow managed to get out a side door, which is about halfway up the stairs, and was trying to escape bleeding through a little courtyard out into the main street. And that's when Yusupov and the others caught up with him, turned him over on his back, and plugged him with one final shot. And then they wrapped him up in some fabric, did drive him out and dump him into uh, an icy hole in Yenavar River. But in fact, the autopsy showed that there was no water in his lungs. Thus, he was already dead by the time his body hit the water. Uh
1: Wow, so it's like kind of a mob hit. It's
2: like a mob <laughs> yeah, hit. And, you know, what the thing is, is Yusuf, uh, who wrote his memoirs, basically lies on every page, but there's hmm. one point in his memoirs where he's actually honest, and he refers to what they did that night as a cowardly act, and that's just what it was. It was basically a cold-blooded murder. They killed an innocent man, um, unarmed innocent man, Uh, for all sorts of bizarre and, you know, unjustifiable reasons. Um, They thought that by killing Rasputin, who they thought was an evil spy helping Germany in the war, that somehow they would save Russia and save the dynasty. But in fact, by killing Rasputin, they sped up the forces of anarchy, which then leads to the downfall of the Romanovs only a few months later in February of 1917. So in fact, you could almost see the murder of Rasputin as the first act of the Russian Revolution.
1: Well, could you talk about that? I mean, how did how did Rasputin's reputation affect the Romanov's reputation? Like, it seemed like they were uh, sort of tied together pretty deeply.
2: Exactly. he had, He had very much tarnished their reputation, and the country came to believe all the lies about Rasputin as some sort of a German agent And they also believed that he was working with Alexandra, who, if you remember, was born in Germany, that she too was working against Russia, was in fact going behind the back of her husband, the Emperor Nicholas, and that she and Rasputin had somehow become the secret powers behind the throne, and they were Mm -hmm. selling out uh, Russia and sending military secrets uh, off to the Kaiser in Berlin. And so as... Rasputin's uh, evil reputation grows, it undermines the legitimacy of the Romanov dynasty and very much helps to speed the demise of the Romanovs after 300 years on the throne and helps Mm -hmm. to lead to the revolution. But it was also the fact that, that a man like Yusupov was able to kill Rasputin and wasn't really punished, showed just how weak Nicholas as a ruler was. Because a strong ruler would have punished Yusupov and the others severely, um, because this was the one man that the Romanovs called and considered their friend. And here were these people that murdered the friend of Nicholas and Alexandra and basically paid no real price for it, which suggested to everyone just how weak the the, the Romanovs were.
0: Right. And I'd uh, read, too, that uh, the Tsar's mother and the uh, Russian Orthodox priests, had celebrated his death. Is that true? That were there a lot of people who wanted him dead?
2: Yeah, that's what's so disturbing is you you do have church figures, you have you know bishops and priests, basically wanting to hold practically hold you know celebration services in their churches for the murder of Rasputin, and um, you know there were members of the the royal family who were glad to see Rasputin done away with. There was very few of them who realized. A that the murder was wrong, and B that in fact it would have bad political consequences.
1: Well, well, I was the nice thing is that after the death of Rasputin, that Germany and Russia would never be at war again, and that's the joke. <laughs> I
2: was going to say. Now hold on a sec.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was it. That doesn't sound right to me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, they, they, they've had a few other issues over over time. What?
0: <laughs> yeah, just a few tiny tips.
2: <laughs>
1: well, in, in retrospect, now that you've got this sort of broad historical view of Rasputin and looked back at these sources, do you have any feel for why uh, there were so many myths and rumors around Rasputin?
2: I think much of the reason for all the mythology was for many critics of the romanovs he was a perfect weapon in the sense that this was this was sort of if you will one of the early um moments of of fake news and i don't like that expression fake news personally but yeah. you do get people Using Rasputin as a way to tarnish the image of the regime. People who wanted to bring the Romanovs down looked at Rasputin and looked at the degree to which he had been embraced by the Romanovs as a gift. So, by telling all sorts of outlandish stories about Rasputin, they were in essence telling stories about the nature of the Romanov regime which became a way of undermining its legitimacy. And I think that is crucial to understanding why Rasputin became such a phenomenon. It's, it's, we wanna look for the answers in his own unique character and personality, and he was unique and distinctive, but nothing like the legends would tell you. The legends were very much a product of a political struggle of the cultural climate of Russia at the turn of the century.
1: That leads to a a really interesting question for me is is how media savvy was Rasputin? Did he do interviews, or is every like did he talk to journalists, or is everything we know just the result of legends and other things written about him?
2: Well, that's a that's a great question because it's only uh, in the early years of the 20th century that Russia gets a relatively free press. Uh, and censorship is relaxed, and so you get this explosion of newspapers. And what do editors worry about, and newspaper owners worry about? And that's selling papers. They got to make money. And these these folks fairly quickly realized that papers that have stories about Rasputin in them sell. And this is a, this is a way to make money. So they'll write anything about Rasputin. They don't care if it has an ounce of truth in it. As long as it'll move newspapers, they're willing to write it. And he's, in fact, at times being hounded by paparazzi who want to take his picture and put it in the paper. They make up interviews. He writes to the editors to say that these stories about him are all a bunch of lies, but they don't really care. They're never really punished. And uh, and they're making money off of it, so they see no reason to stop. So this is also there's also basically like a, a profit motive, if you will, not just a political motive, but a profit motive for telling outlandish tales. Neat.
0: Uh, and you were saying that his family were in the background, his wife and children. What ended up happening to them? Do we know anything about them?
2: Yeah, the story of his family is actually really really fascinating. Um, he had a wife and three children, um, under the Soviets, his wife and his son are basically sent off to a prison camp, prison labor camp. Uh, and that's basically the end of them. His younger daughter dies in Moscow, most likely of some sort of disease, although some people want to insist that she was somehow poisoned. Um, but the most interesting of the three children, uh, was a daughter named Matryona, who also went by the name Maria, who ends up escaping Russia and makes her way to the West. Uh, and she ends up in places like Berlin and Paris as a cabaret performer, as an animal trainer, as a dancer. And she basically tries to earn a living by you know, being the daughter of Rasputin. And so she wow. she performs uh, around Europe and then eventually she comes to the United States and um, ends up performing in circuses in the United States as an animal trainer until while she was preparing uh, for one performance in Indiana, I think this was in the 1930s, she was mauled by a bear, mm-hmm. uh, ends up in the hospital um, and then eventually makes her way uh, to Los Angeles and spends the rest of her life. Uh, living quietly in the L.A. area. And in fact, if you're one of these people like I am who's obsessed with finding the graves of people, uh, she's buried now uh, in a large cemetery right near Koreatown off Venice Boulevard in L.A. A small little headstone that says, Maria Rasputin has the, uh, the dates. I think she died in 1977 or 78. So, yeah, her story is really remarkable. She wrote yeah. her memoirs a few times and she warrants uh, a book on her own.
1: Definitely. Wow. Yeah. She, she was, I, I did read about her just a bit and saw that she was uh, at least somewhat tied to the legend of Anastasia and the idea that maybe she had survived.
2: Yeah, well, some people can't let that one go, you know. No, 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 I, yeah, I, but they all died. <laughs> no one wants to believe me. Yeah, no, I believe you. We, we, yes, yeah. we, do, yeah. we do, we
1: do. <laughs> <laughs> didn't didn't they actually find the like DNA evidence of the corpses? I mean, I think that was pretty definitive, wasn't it? It's quite
2: definitive. Yeah, oh, yeah. the the Russian Orthodox Church is still arguing over two sets of remains, but all the scientists. Uh, have put this to rest, that, yeah, they all they all died uh, that night in the summer of 1918 in Yekaterinburg in the, in the basement, which is also an interesting parallel I touch on the book, is, you know, Rasputin is killed in a cellar uh, in the middle of the night as if to hide what is being done to him, and that's exactly what happens to the Romanovs uh, two years later. They, too, are killed in the middle of the night in a basement uh, as if, the murderers knew what they were doing was wrong, and they wanted to hide it. Wow, so this is kind of the, that, hor- the horror film ending, right? With- yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly.
0: Uh, didn't you write in the book that uh, they were clutching Rasputin amulets or, or some kind of uh, medals from him?
2: Well, yeah, the, uh, they weren't clutching them, but several of the daughters, I we don't know necessarily if all of four of the of the daughters of the czar were wearing. Amulets around their neck with the image of Rasputin, as if he would protect them, even though he was dead and gone. That somehow he would still protect the family. Wow.
1: So, so are do you know I, I, because of the nature of the legends around his death? Do, do you know? I, you know, as at my age, I remember when Elvis died. People kept saying that Elvis
0: it's, isn't dead, right? Exactly.
1: <laughs> right. People d- deny that he's dead, right? And so, it, which are there, they
0: still do, and that, that's remarkable. But yeah, well,
1: he would be quite old now, right? <laughs> and and, and I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying to say well, he still alive.
0: would be older. Right.
1: He would be, and, and, and his Elvis. I mean, would he really be able to resist making new material? I don't think so. So, but 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 Elvis <laughs> aside, were there legends about Rasputin still being alive? Or
2: you know, it's interesting. There weren't really a lot of Rasputin sightings. Uh, you know, he <laughs> was uh, he was buried out near the Tsar Summer Palace of Silo outside the capital, and then after the fall of the Romanovs, uh, they discovered his body and it was dug up was brought back into the Capitol. And then late one night it was driven out, uh, out of the city. Uh, and to this day, we don't know what, what happened to it. Um, it was most likely brought to uh, a polytechnic Institute that had massive furnaces yeah, and was dumped in one of the furnaces. And that was, and that was the end of the body. Uh, there are other stories that it was burned out in a, in a forest and things like that. But, um, uh, no one is ever going to find any trace of Rasputin. And no one really claimed that that he continued to walk the face of the earth. Okay. They were kind of ready to be done with him.
1: Right, but they did probably <laughs> shoot him and poison him a few more times, just to be sure, right?
2: That or is d- possible.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, so you speak Russian, and I, that doesn't really make you necessarily an expert on etymology. But I'm curious, the name Rasputin, I can't help but notice that the latter part of it is... Spelled kind of like Vladimir Putin's name is. Are those names related in any way, or is it just a coincidence?
2: It's just coincidence. There's no, uh, you know, uh, genealogical connection between Vladimir Putin and Grigory Rasputin, um, as you'd say their names in Russian. Um, just as there's no um, clue to Rasputin's character in his name, uh, because Rasputnik is is a dissolute. Person and some people tried to claim that he was called Rasputin because he was like a dissolute, drunken, uh, debauched figure. But Rasputin, Rasputin in Russian, was a fairly common name in Siberia at the time, and and there is no connection. And there's no connection between him and um, and the current leader of Russia.
0: I did want to add something just about the uh, your comments about Rasputin and, and Putin. And uh, I just think you've created a conspiracy theory. Yes. In suggesting uh, that.
1: Because
0: <laughs> I, I, I never thought of that. So just you raising that, someone's going to. Well, turn I, that I've into always conspiracy
1: been. Theory. Well, I shouldn't say always, but I've been curious about it for years. And the fact that you two are denying it means you're in on it, right? So.
0: Oh, oh no, no.
1: <laughs> I'm not coming. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> this will be bonus material i'll take that out of the regular episode I, I, even when, like when i'm wrong about stuff i don't want to accidentally spread misinformation we're very we're very careful here. oh yeah. I, I yeah yeah i'm, so. I'm,
0: I'm, yeah, I'm just
1: joking. no no i but know you just, are just but a few more, yeah but
0: <laughs> just a few more questions and we'll let you go we really appreciate your time sure. um so russia and the west have often been at odds with each other historically so why is it that the western world is still so fascinated with Rasputin today?
2: Well, I think the myth is exciting. It sells, you know. I think there'll always be people interested um, in him. I think his his physical uh, presence in photographs is is striking. There's something alluring about the idea of, of someone coming from so low on, on the social hierarchy and ascending so high. I mean, I think I mentioned something in the book in the beginning about it. It's sort of like a dark fairy tale, you know? Mm-hmm. If, you, if you were to sort of step back and someone were to tell you the story of Rasputin's life arc, you'd say this never could happen. How does some illiterate peasant uh, from the, you know, wilds of Siberia end up becoming, you know, the closest confidant? of, you know, the great rulers of the Russian empire. I mean, it doesn't really seem believable. And so I think there's this sort of fairy tale, but sort of dark fairy tale quality to it that I think is exciting. And then, you know, Americans like to party. So, you know, the, all the, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the boozing and the womanizing, I suppose for some people is kind of inherently exciting. <laughs> yeah,
1: for sure. And he had an epic beard too for the hipsters out there.
2: Yeah, the epic beard, yeah. I think I think on a certain level too, people like people like easy explanations to complicated phenomena. That's a fact. Yeah. It's easy to say, well, you know, the Romanovs fell all because of Rasputin, right? You know, and Russia, you know, collapsed all because of this one crazed holy man, when it obviously was infinitely more complex. But we grasp, uh, maybe all of us on some level, we grasp toward these simpler explanations. And in a figure like Rasputin, you can explain away so many, uh, so many th- things that are infinitely more complicated.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Douglas, for spending time with us talking about this interesting character. And uh, we'll obviously yeah, this
0: has been fascinating.
1: Yeah, we'll put, my pleasure. My pleasure. We'll put links to that book and your other stuff in the show notes and anything else you want to uh, pay special attention to. But we try to ask all our guests, especially on their first appearance, um, what is your favorite monster? And monster could be anything that you define as a monster.
2: My favorite monster? Yeah. I had a couple of teachers in elementary school, but I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> I don't cool the uh, they were pretty scary. Uh, you know, there's one figure that has always intrigued me and and kind of, kind of played on my nerves. I don't know if he's technically a monster, though, but it, it's it got to be the Headless Horseman from uh, Legend of Sleeping Hollow. Oh, that's a
1: good one, oh, yeah.
2: Cool. Yeah, so- yeah. I, I always, as a kid... Reading the book and then watching, I think, a cheesy cartoon version of it in the 70s, it terrified me. And I think there's something for me about this, you know, the idea that I find more frightening is that humans are, are more dangerous and more likely to get you than any boogeyman or Yeti or Bigfoot. And so this, I'm more terrified by monsters that are actually human. That's we just did a show on that topic,
1: uh huh. Okay. And I, actually, I'm planning to tie. Th- I think we're actually going to end up doing a series about humans as monsters because we've yeah. we we, uh, we just started. So much on the- oh yeah, yeah. And like you, we 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 enjoy treating the sort of fictional folklore stuff, and we're curious <laughs> about the possibly real, but we're definitely interested in the actual no, no, really, this guy was a monster or this lady was a monster sort of characters. So that that fits in really nicely. And that was how I was thinking about framing this episode. Although, uh, while he sounds like he was sexually a monster, it sounds like a lot of the, uh, uh, the reputation of Rasputin was sort of crafted... Posthumously, or or at least yeah. during his life, I mean, he, he was, was misunderstood. He was, yeah, he was
2: vilified in, in ways. So yeah, yep, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think calling Rasputin a monster is going too far. Yeah, yeah, but but
1: if you only took the legendary view of him, like if you just mm. if you didn't actually dig in and find out what the facts were, wh- what about then? What, what do you still think he's not a monster at that point?
2: Well, if you want to go with the myth, he's a monster. And in fact, I found I found a bizarre black-and-white photograph that was for sale on eBay when I was doing my research and I'd get bored and I'd look for Rasputin memorabilia on eBay. And there was some museum in Germany, and I think it might have been East Germany. It was a wax figure museum, and it had one room that was, you know, history's most evil characters yeah and there they had you know like several nazis and then they had rasputin wow. and I'm, thinking, I'm thinking come on that's guys not a, fair.
1: yeah that's not even the same kind of class of of evil is it no no yeah
2: but uh, yeah some people want to equate uh rasputin with hitler or himmler or something and obviously that's that's where you lose me
1: yeah, no, actually, the BBC did a, a series on like the wickedest people, and they did Aleister Crowley, uh, John D, and Rasputin, and I can't remember who the fourth one was, but yeah, it was along those lines. But yeah, it was all it was sort of mystical people, not necessarily serial killer. It wasn't you know it wasn't Stalin or Hitler. It was just like people who were considered sort of dark. At this sort of uh, meta level, right? You know, it's sort of this uh, folklore level or legendary yeah. type thing, and uh, and those are the more interesting from a, a creepy at night kind of thing. But they're not the ones you're going to put you in a grave, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, no. Yeah. And as you say, it's the it's the it's the real human monsters who you really should be wary of, not the ones who are, you know, uh, have dark stories about them, but little to back right. it up. So right. yeah. Definitely. Well, Definitely. Douglas, uh, by the way, I should have been mentioned as far as I know, we're not related.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, I was gonna joke about that yeah. at the start. Yeah.
2: <laughs> There's a lot of us out there.
1: There are. Yeah. Like, I blame my grandfather, but no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, thank you so much for A for digging into this to try to get to the root of it, and yes. B for taking the time to talk to our listeners. And we really. Yeah, it was
0: very it. enjoyable. Yeah, yeah very much
1: you. so. Yeah, my pleasure. Enjoyed it
2: so. myths. we'll have busted. to have you back
0: yeah. on <laughs> about something else. You've written eight books.
2: Well, not eight. No, six. I've got a six. new book coming out in the fall. Um, that actually, well, it's it's. Uh, I want to. I don't want to call them monsters. These were people pushed to the extremes that led them to do what we would consider monstrous acts and crimes. I'm writing a, I've am writing just finished this book. Uh, it's called The Russian Job. It'll be out, uh, as I said, in the fall. And it tells the story of this horrible famine, famine that hit Russia in the early 1920s, one of the worst famines in world history. Uh, millions of people died. People were, were reduced to cannibalism in various places. Uh, and Russia was saved by the generosity of the United States. Uh, Herbert Hoover, who was then Secretary of Commerce, put together a giant relief effort that went over to Russia, and for two years, from 1921 to 1923, fed as many as 11 million people a day, uh, wow. and basically basically saved the country from, from utter ruin, and then went home. And the Russians were so grateful, they said they would never forget this act of humanitarianism and generosity and charity. <laughs> But of course, as soon as we left, they did everything they could to erase any trace that we had ever been there. So, <laughs> I'm trying to uh, to to bring back this lost story of of uh, a moment when when the United States did something right. That's cool. That feels really interesting.
0: Yeah, it's amazing.
2: Yeah. yeah, it's a great story.
1: Why can't we all just get along? That's <laughs> <laughs> there's the question.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, have a good night, Douglas. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much,
0: Douglas. We'll keep in touch.
2: My pleasure. Talk to you later.
0: (laughs) Bye-bye.
1: Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stoltzner.
1: You just heard an interview with author Douglas Smith about the Russian monk Rasputin. A link to Douglas's book and additional details will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org and on Patreon. Monster Talk's an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed in this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org, forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, You can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Do you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content.